Entertainment Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies. Hello and welcome to this episode where we'll talk in further detail about Cybos 2020. Now Cybos, if you've been hiding under a rock for quite some time, is an event hosted every year by Swift. This year's event was slightly different from the norm in that it was entirely virtual and you can catch up on our previous musings on the 2020 event specifically by checking out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple and SoundCloud. Hello, I'm Rich Williams, host of the Payments Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by our very own Marcus Hughes, Head of Strategic Business Development at Bottomline. Now, Marcus has a wealth of experience in banking and payments in general, and today we'll share his insights on Cybos 2020 and what he sees as the key takeaways. Marcus, a very warm welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you on the channel with us, uh, and your episodes in particular are extremely popular with our listeners. Hello, Rich, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, happy to be back, of course, uh, and to share a few th- thoughts on um, uh, an event about which I feel passionately. Um, it's been one of my favourite conferences for decades, quite literally. Decades. So you've clearly been a, you've been a regular attendee in the past. Now, Marcus, for anyone not familiar with Cybus or maybe fairly new to it, could you begin by telling us all how you would describe this year's event and what made it so different in 2020? Okay, that's a great question, of course. Um, for me, Cybos is by far the most important conference of the year for the transaction banking industry. Um, over the last three decades, uh, myself and tens of thousands of banking and payments professionals have literally traveled around the world to attend this important event, usually held uh, in exciting places like San Francisco, Hong Kong, Boston, Dubai, and Sydney, to name but a few of the Cybos's great venues. Uh, and Cybos is, as you said, hosted by Swift, which is a global financial messaging network. The, the secure messages which are exchanged on this mission-critical network uh, cover domestic and cross-border payments, uh, foreign exchange trading, uh, securities processing, and, and of course, trade finance. Uh, and just to give a sense of the Swift network's massive scale, in total, those messages represent an average of six trillion US dollars of value each and every business day. Um, the Cybos conference is therefore the go-to place um, for the latest expert views on where the transaction banking industry is heading. And, and as you mentioned, this year's Cybos was special in a very strange way, um, but a way which reflects the world in which we live today. Uh, as a result of COVID-19, um, Swift made the tough but correct decision to hold this uh, important trade show as a virtual event. Um, Given the big pulling power of Cybos, no less than 22,000 professionals signed up to attend this four-day event, and that's despite only being able to participate remotely. So I, I felt this high attendance was a massive gesture of support for Swift, um, which reflects the importance of the Cybos event itself. But it was also a powerful symbol of how things have changed. You know, the strange new normal for many of us is that we now work from home and attend meetings online, maybe sitting at our kitchen table or in a home office some, uh, for some of us. Um, so this Cybos was really an extraordinary event. But, but, but more important, I have to say, for me, it kind of worked, uh, especially when you bear in mind that the sad alternative would have been not to hold Cybos at all this year. And that would have been a terrible loss. 
Yeah, I totally agree, Marcus. And as you said, we're all trying to adapt to what this new normal is. And great to hear that the attendance was up. Um, So a very good initial overview there. Now, specific to you, Marcus, what were the biggest topics of discussion this year? Well, as usual, um, discussions covered a wide range of industry subjects. So we had um, digital innovation in payments and securities, um, regulatory compliance, data security, um, modernizing trade finance, and the adoption of um, new ISO 20022 messaging standards, which which carry richer data. But for me, the the biggest overarching topic was a, a new word for banking and payments experts, which most of us had not really thought about until this year. By that, by that of course, I mean COVID-19, along with other new terms like coronavirus and pandemic. So well, COVID-19 was ever present during this CYBOS, referenced in just about every single presentation, I would say. Um, and, and of course, the, the key message was that COVID-19 changes everything. Um, the, the pandemic has a massive impact on the payments and transaction banking industry. So for, for a start, an important series of major industry trends and initiatives have actually been accelerated by COVID-19. So we have more people working from home in our industry, and very successfully, I might add. We have faster digital transformation, uh, moving more rapidly than ever. There's more demand and wider adoption of supply chain finance. Uh, and there are renewed efforts to digitize trade finance and, and remove paper from trade processing. And then there's now even the increased likelihood that we'll see the introduction of a central bank digital currency within a few years. So you've introduced a variety of great topics there, Marcus, which, of course, we can explore later on in the episode. But firstly, I just wanted to pose this one to you. Now, I know that historically, Swift has used Cybos as a platform to showcase new initiatives and services. So was there any big news from Swift this year? Uh, yes, Rich, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, at every opportunity uh, during this Cybos, our hosts at Swift were, were keen to promote their ambitious new strategy to make payments and securities transactions faster and frictionless. Uh, over the next two years and, and beyond, um, Swift planned to transform payment and securities processing and, and improve cross-border infrastructures. They want to um, enable financial institutions to deliver um, instant uh, end-to-end transactions from one account to another uh, anywhere in the world and with greater transparency and, and predictability. Um, Swift's strategy is is to expand beyond financial messaging now to to provide comprehensive transaction management services. Uh, And these new services will will span the entire end-to-end process, and and they're going to deliver better visibility and control of those transactions. Uh, And these new transaction management services will will accelerate innovation, and they're going to make it easier for banks and financial institutions, whether they're working independently or in collaboration with fintechs, they're going to be able to drive business growth and improve their their own performance. Um, uh, So in payments, um, banks will be able to expand their offering to small and medium-sized businesses, as well as to consumers, of course, and and to enhance the the customer experience. Meanwhile, in securities, um, banks and financial institutions are going to benefit from easier reconciliation, uh, better reporting, and asset servicing, as well as end-to-end visibility of, of their transactions. And this is going to reduce um, settlement failures and it'll mitigate the risk of non-compliance with you know, complex rules and regulations. 
Marcus, did Swift make any references to cloud technology and APIs at Cybus this year? I mean, th- those topics are seemingly hotter than ever and pretty much hard to ignore. Yeah, you're right. They certainly did. Um, a key element uh, of Swift's new strategy is that their next generation digital platform is going to make much greater use of APIs and, and cloud technology. They'll provide a series of shared services uh, in which historically banks have invested individually. Um, so this strategy is really intended to save the industry time and money. Um, richer data capabilities are going to make it easier to pre-validate essential information uh, like um, beneficiary account details. And, and there'll be enhancements in fraud detection, uh, data quality, uh, advanced analytics, uh, transaction tracking, uh, and exception management. So SWIFT's board uh, of directors have um, endorsed this strategy, and it's intended to serve all of SWIFT's uh, customer segments, so regardless of their size or geography. Uh, and importantly, the strategy is going to allow um, for flexible adoption to suit the timing of each of their bank customers. And that's thanks to backward compatibility that, that, that they're ensuring. Um, so Swift's strategy builds on the impressive success of GPI, which, as you know, stands for Global Payment Innovation. I, I know you've heard me talk about Swift GPI before, which has been a very successful um, initiative in recent years. Basically, GPI has been making cross-border payments faster and more transparent uh, with end-to-end tracking. In this way, GPI is already making it possible for many cross-border payments under the GPI scheme to be settled within just 30 minutes of the transaction being initiated. Uh, Swift's new strategy will mean a change in the way banks work together, um, underpinned by by strong service-level agreements and, and richer messaging using ISO 20022. Uh, and Swift's partners, like us, will be able to deliver their, their own products via the Swift platform. For example, data analytics and insights to help better decision making. That all sounds very impressive and I suppose ambitious at a high level, Marcus. Now, could you give the listeners any concrete examples of a new Swift service under this strategic vision? Yes, of course, that, that's a Good question. Very appropriate. Um, actually, I think the best example would be Swift's plan to move into low-value cross-border payments um, for small and medium-sized businesses, as well as for consumers. So traditionally, um, Swift has been associated with high-value cross-border payments for, for banks and for large corporates. So the plan to move into cross-border payments for small and medium-sized businesses and consumers is, is going to help banks to win back um, business which some of them have lost in recent years due to the increased competition they've faced from non-bank, foreign exchange, cross-border payment providers, which have specialised in this low-value payment space. And precisely how far have SWIFT gone with this new low-value cross-border payment service? Well, well, SWIFT is already working with over 20 major banks on this solution. Um, it's essentially a new service level agreement um, built on top of the existing GPI infrastructure. Um, and the initiative will enable consumers uh, and small and medium sized businesses to benefit from much better predictability with uh, knowing their fees and settlement times uh, upfront. Um, the payment originator and the beneficiary will each be able to access real time transaction status from their banks. The basic service level agreement for settlement is within four hours of a payment being initiated, but results already show that some test payments have been settled within just four minutes. 
the new solution starts with pre-processing, which ensures that transparency about fees and payment routing is, is, is visible. Um, all participant banks have to commit that they will not deduct any fees from the principal amount of the payments. So the beneficiary is going to receive the amount which it is expecting. Uh, for example, the same amount that they've invoiced. Um, meanwhile, interbank fees are settled bilaterally between participant banks based on management information which SWIFT will be providing. This, this new low-value payment service for, for small and medium-sized businesses as well as consumers is expected to be available um, to all GPI financial institutions uh, during 2021, so all quite soon really. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, good to hear, I'm sure, for many of us. Now, you explored the use of APIs earlier on, uh, which is very closely linked to open banking. Of course, it underpins the whole service. So was that closely related topic discussed much at Cybos this year? Uh, yes, uh, open banking was often referenced, especially in the context of being an important new way of initiating payments and, of course, of sharing data, always with the, the customer's permission. And that would be in order to provide faster and easier data analytics and to drive you know, better decision making. So in, in the world of SWIFT, APIs have quickly risen to prominence in the last few years, um, to, to the point that they're now viewed as a data exchange technology, which can, be, uh, which can really deliver innovative services all in real time. So, so three years ago, Swift announced its API program, and since then they've invested really heavily in APIs and in a sandbox, of course. And, and they now offer an open platform which enables you know, standardized and secure API services for their, their large community. But to be clear, we all recognize that the full-scale adoption of API-driven solution is going to take a sustained effort across the industry. Um, however, I would say that Swift's commitment to APIs is enabling an extension of the Swift platform, which includes, of course, allowing their fintech partners, uh, like Bottom Line, to to expose their own products on the on the Swift cloud. Um, during Cybos, there were a good number of large banks and some large corporates also speaking about their commitment to using APIs. Um, some of the world's top transaction banks explained that they've seen a, a really dramatic uptake in APIs. For example, linking corporate treasury management systems directly with multiple banks' back-end systems. That's in order to exchange data in, in, in real time. Uh, historically, batch-driven processes and file-based data exchange, uh, they were widespread. But the, the, these legacy systems are, are slower than today's API-driven model, which is, of course, um, real time. So, so at Cybos, there was a strong feeling that this is all set to change. Uh, and for a growing number of global banks, APIs have already become a, a new channel for corporates to access that bank quickly and easily in real time. Uh, for, for example, um, Swift's GPI uh, API um, it provides access to data on cross-border payment status, offering much greater transparency and, and visibility. What's the latest position on API standards, Marcus? We've seen that Europe has faced challenges in rolling out PSD2, for example, due to a lack of open standards, and consequently that slowed down the adoption. So what's happening in global markets in relation to the standardization of APIs? Um, exactly, uh, exactly right, I'd say. Um, many speakers at Cybos recognize that um, in order to drive the successful adoption of APIs, by this international banking and corporate community, it's really essential 
that common standards are agreed. Um, it was often suggested uh, during the event, and, and, and previously, I must admit also, and I have to say I completely agree, there's a great role here for SWIFT. They're, they're, they're already the registration authority for ISO 20022, and, and they maintain the, the content and integrity of this really important messaging format. So it's really entirely logical that, that SWIFT extends their expertise into this, this new and fast-emerging API ecosystem. They're, they're really well suited to coordinate the development of API standards globally and to become an API platform, I would say. Um, that would effectively be as an aggregator for their many customers, for their community, as they like to call it. So, so given this background, I think Swift are creating a really valuable role for themselves to help standardize a whole range of API-related activities. So as far as I can see, to try and summarize, I think Swift's scope covers a whole series of important areas like um, identification, authentication, authorization, uh, open API specifications, data models, as well as security and non-repudiation. So quite technical stuff, but that's what they're good at. Personally, I really welcome um, Swift's approach to API standardization. Um, they're really well positioned in my in my opinion, with, with, you know, with strong uh, credentials to coordinate these open API standards uh, on a global basis, of course, which is exactly what Swift are used to doing. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, now, I'm going to address the elephant in the room, which, of course, is COVID-19. I think it was somewhat unavoidable to have a question on that. And it's clear that during the pandemic, many supply chains have broken down, while others have been under enormous pressure to deliver vital supplies like personal protective equipment, medicines, and above all else, of course, just food and basic essentials. Now, you mentioned that COVID did come up in almost every presentation that you witnessed. Now, what specifically was said about the pandemic and the situation around it during the trade finance sessions at Cybos 2020? Richard, absolutely right. This was a very important topic. Um, there were several very informative discussions at Cybos about how COVID-19 has generated a greater sense of urgency, far more immediate than ever before, regarding the need to digitize trade finance and, and quickly, uh, something needs to be done. Um, speakers described a few worrying situations where the release of goods by customs or warehouse controllers had been delayed and the provision of finance had been slow. Ridiculously, this was sometimes simply because the required paperwork, uh, the trade documents were received late or they were stuck in an office, sitting on the desk of someone who was actually working from home. Um, so that was a pretty sad situation. Um, fortunately, in other more successful cases, and there were plenty of them, quick fixes were implemented very efficiently um, using conventional but effective technology. So, for example, um, optical character recognition, or OCR, um, which is used to uh, scan and distribute uh, documents electronically, this um, simple but effective solution meant that trade-related documents could be checked by banks, uh, their operational staff, who, who were actually working from home without any need to go into the office. Um, it would, of course, be better still if, if the, this, these vital trade documents could be exchanged as structured data in a machine-readable manner. Um, in, the, in this way, the, the pandemic has been really a major catalyst to drive the need to reduce paper friction in the trade finance and to digitize the exchange of letter of credit documentation, so such as paper invoices uh, and transport documents like, like bills of lading. Um, solutions do exist, but they haven't yet achieved widespread adoption, but that's coming soon and there's a greater sense of urgency now. 
Uh, you've, you've stumbled on something there, Marcus, which is very close to my heart personally, which is about sustainability, uh, increased efficiency and automation. Now, are there many of these initiatives to reduce paper in trade finance and automate the processes around them? Uh, yes, it certainly is. Um, the World Trade Organization has um, recently identified there are more than 30 projects around the world, uh, all aimed at digitizing trade and supply chain finance. Uh, uh, interestingly, a good number of these initiatives are actually blockchain related. Um, and, and these projects tend to involve consortia or large groups of major banks who are supporting distributed ledger-based platforms on which electronic documents and transaction status can be uploaded, verified, and approved. And these platforms have names like Marco Polo, WeTrade, and Contour, and several others, of course. Um, but um, a number of these programs are already live with a growing number of commercial transactions passing through the platform. So, for example, uh, Singapore's network trade platform is live after two years of trials, and it's already achieved really good traction. It's got 4,000 businesses using the platform to exchange documents and access trade finance from the participating banks. Um, Singaporean government has been impressively proactive in distributed ledger technology. Um, they've taken a keen interest in modernizing Singapore's trade finance capability, which is, of course, key to the region's economic growth. But, but, but there are still challenges uh, with these um, DLT-based platforms. So, so, for example, interoperability between disparate platforms, uh, each supported by many banks, that, that continues to be complicated. And, and in some cases, we've got banks who are supporting three or four of these competing platforms, and they'd like to see greater consolidation, or at very least, more standardization uh, and greater interoperability. I'm very glad to hear that there's a lot of important work being done to digitize the world, the world of trade and supply chain finance. Um, similar to my question on uh, APIs earlier on, what's happening about the development of international standards here, Marcus? Yeah, this is a really important point. I do agree. Um, so banks are still only part of the way through this ambitious migration to digitize trade finance. Uh, a lack of standards and legal certainty, they, they've really proven to be quite a, a major barrier to adoption. Uh, and there's an important digital standards initiative under, underway now, which is, which is actually led by the International Chamber of Commerce. This was initiated by, by that blockchain um, based a trade finance platform, Marco Polo, but it's actually been handed over to the International Chamber of Commerce as a way of driving greater adoption by the, the global trade finance community. Um, recent SWIFT statistics show, show that, not surprisingly, global trade volumes fell during COVID-19, but it's also striking that there was actually a double-digit growth in corporates using um, quite specialized SWIFT MT798 trade finance messages and, and File Act also. And this was being used to exchange um, uh, trade-related data uh, in, in a structured format with their trade finance banks. So, so su supply chain finance uh, of, um, of open account transactions, which is effectively finance of invoices that have been approved quickly by the, by the debtor or by the payer, uh, and uh, they also saw really significant growth. Um, and it's a very efficient way to help suppliers get paid quicker and to improve their cash flow. And indeed, at favorable interest, of rate, uh, interest rates, of course. Um, so, so research by McKinsey presented at Cybos actually indicated that supply chain finance is now the fastest growing product in global transaction banking, which I personally found fascinating.
Wow, that it certainly is. Um, and sticking with the blockchain or, or DLT theme, you mentioned at the start of this podcast that discussions at Cybos suggested the issuance of digital currencies by central banks is getting closer. And that's clearly really exciting. So could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Uh, yeah, yes, I, I've been I've been watching the evolution of blockchain for years now, and, and I followed with great interest the ups and downs of this um, exciting new technology as it's travelled along Gartner's famous uh, hype cycle. Um, um, uh, so, yeah, as mentioned a few minutes ago, there are already several live multi-bank platforms using blockchain to make trade and supply chain finance faster and, and less risky. So th- these initiatives have great potential. But but at the end, the other end of the spectrum um, of, of blockchain use cases, I, I can completely understand why regulators have have concerns about the the idea of volatile cryptocurrencies becoming a widely used way to make cross border payments. And um, what, what's more, of course, anonymous cryptocurrencies have, have all too often been associated with um, financial crime and money laundering and so on. So the the, the relatively recent arrival on the scene of stablecoin has shown good potential to solve the, the the volatility problem which cryptocurrencies face. Of, of course, provided these stablecoin are, are truly pegged and backed one-to-one against their chosen fiat currency or, or real currency issued by a central bank, by, I mean by that. Um, anything less than that strict matching ha- offers less stability than is implied by the name stablecoin. Um, but, but now at last, I, I do sense we're reaching the next level in blockchain's evolution, especially relating to digital currencies. Um, Recent work and and, and statements by various central banks make it really increasingly likely that within a year or two, one or more central banks is going to decide to issue their own central bank digital currency. So there are a number of um, central banks have announced initiatives to to do this, um, while others want to make sure they're simply uh, ready on the sidelines just in case adoption gains rapid uh, traction. Um, Ironically, I think the controversy around Facebook's Libra stablecoin has actually made the launch of a central bank digital currency more likely than ever. But for me, it's now become more a question of when, not if, a central bank launches a digital currency. That is somewhat ironic. I remember us discussing Libra uh, at a previous time. So according to you, Marcus, which of the central bank, uh, banks do you think will be the first or among the first to go live with a digital currency? So there are quite a number of central banks working hard uh, on exploring the best way to approach digital currencies um, and which model to adopt. So for example, um, the Bank of England and the Bank of France separately have been looking at both retail and wholesale options for central bank digital currencies. Even the European Central Bank has just launched a consultation and is really talking up the advantages of a digital currency across Europe, and partly to protect the euro's sovereignty and to prevent private initiatives getting in first. Um, Another great example is the Central Bank of Sweden, which is really quite advanced in developing a retail e-krona, which, which may be one of the first to launch. But, but I have to say, it's probably the People's Bank of China, which is the most advanced of all. They, they've been holding large-scale pilots for their E1 in various cities across China, such as uh, Shenzhen, which is just across the border from Hong Kong. Um, which I visited quite a few times. Um, Major retailers like Starbucks and many others have been participating in this really important uh, pilot. During Cybos, the People's Bank of China announced that during these tests, they've already processed 
three million E1 payments worth $160 million uh, in equivalent. Um, during these tests, over 100,000 personal digital wallets and 8,500 corporate digital wallets have been created. Um, typical use cases have been, uh, that have been tested here are for like bill payments, transport, shopping, and government services, and so on. Um, China's planning to use the E1 at their Winter Olympic Games in Beijing in 2022. And, and as well as this domestic E1 we're talking about, um, the People's Bank of China also believes that digital currencies could also be used to make cross-border payments at a lower cost, lower risk, and more efficiently than the, the payments we make today. And so, so very exciting times for central bank digital currencies, I'd say. Um, for a few years, my personal favorite use case for blockchain is making trade and supply chain finance easier and more joined up. But now I actually think that central bank digital currencies are rapidly becoming the most exciting blockchain innovation, which is at last emerging. And that's after many years of lots of experimentation and investing huge sums of money in blockchain. But maybe it'll prove to be worthwhile after all. You raised a few moments ago the risk of cryptocurrencies being caught up in financial crime and money laundering. Now, that's an unfortunate connotation of the currency, which is a label that's hard to shake off. Did Cybos discussions raise the growing problem of cyber fraud during this year's event? Yes, Richard, you're absolutely right. Um, this problem continues to grow in importance. And, and there, are, there, were, there were several sessions uh, on this big topic. Uh, Swift highlighted that sophisticated cyber attacks on Swift member banks you know, continue to all around the world. And, and we, we, we already know a bottom line that Swift mentioned that the, the typical um, pattern can be um, uh, broken down into probably four steps. Step one would be um, cyber attackers compromise the target bank's environment. Then as a step two, the attackers obtain um, valid operational credentials for certain key users. Uh, then step three, the attackers submit uh, fraudulent payment instructions. And then finally, step four, they quickly hide the evidence of this fraudulent activity and move on. Um, un understandably, SWIFTs have, have always been really at pains to emphasize that their SWIFT network itself has not been compromised. It, it, it's, um, it's the customer endpoints which are comp compromised. Typically, when fraudsters somehow obtain user credentials to access uh, a SWIFTnet. The focus from fraudsters is still heavily on banks and much less on corporates, but everybody does, of course, need to remain alert. So, so the old joke remains as true today as during the days, I don't know, of the Wild West. Uh, you know, why do bank robbers steal from banks? Simple answer, of course, because that's where the money is. So that's what they go for. Um, the duration of those four steps I mentioned in, in the hacking process is quite interesting. What surprises some people is that once fraudsters are inside the bank network, they can sit there unobserved for anything between one month or even two years. But once the fraudsters actually gain access to the SWIFT messaging system, which is what they're after, everything can happen very quickly, typically in just a week or so. Uh, and, and, and generally, the, the fraudulent attack is going to last just a few hours with, with fraudulent payment messages being sent out every 10 minutes, and then they exit as fast as they can, having hidden the evidence. Um, the highest risk reasons... Uh, for, for victim banks uh, are in Africa, uh, South Asia, as, as well as uh, Southeast Asia. Um, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East are still considered to be medium risk, um, where, whereas North America and Australia are quite low risk. And the typical location of 
beneficiary banks who are receiving fraudulent funds is different to the victim banks that we just mentioned. Um, the, the highest risk region is, is Asia, followed by Western Europe and the Middle East. Um, North America, Eastern Europe and Russia are kind of considered medium risk, I'd say. And, and meanwhile, lower risk beneficiary banks for receiving these fraudulent payments would be in, say, Latin America, Africa or Australia. Looking back on that, so SWIFT's customer security program has been running um, for quite a few years now um, as an important way to ensure that SWIFT user banks are making their systems as secure as possible. Now, next year, as usual, the customer security program is going to be made um, even um, more strict. Um, so from 2021, the program is going to require an independent assurance to SWIFT, so, so that an, an attestation from the in-house chief information security officer will no longer be sufficient for SWIFT's uh, customer security program certification. So it's important that banks continue to talk with SWIFT and, and their fraud and financial crime solution providers, you know, like bottom line, so, so they can make sure that they are properly prepared for, for tightening of these uh, SWIFT audit requirements. So, Marcus, um, very convenient uh, inclusion there about compliance in your, your uh, previous statement, um, which is that complying with anti-money laundering sanction screening is often very difficult. So was there any discussion about how businesses can actually stay on top of this? Well, well yes. Um, as usual, sanction screening was a, a hot topic of discussion, um, mainly because banks, even large and generally sophisticated banks, they continue to incur big fines for breaching uh, money laundering requirements. So, so, so nowadays, sanction screening really needs to be done in real time. Um, there, there are too many false positives. Uh, are, um, they're a major pain point for, for banks of all sizes, along with the poor quality of data in payment instructions. So, so cloud-based um, AML sanction filtering solutions, you know, machine learning and, and fuzzy logic, they're all helping in, the, in this fight on crime. Um, but just as um, we've been telling our customers for, for, for quite a few years now, it, it was really highlighted during Cybos that the, the adoption of ISO 20022, these new messaging formats, that's really going to uh, greatly improve the completeness of data. And this will make uh, AML compliance much easier. Uh, that's, that's because ISO 20022 formats can carry much richer data than conventional uh, SWIFT MT FIN messages. Uh, and importantly, this structured data is machine readable. So this really should increase automation and real-time processing, greatly improving uh, the banking and payments industry's ability to fight fraud and financial crime. Now, speaking about ISO 20022, uh, again, as I referenced earlier, you and I have discussed that uh, very important data-rich messaging standard previously, which is due to be rolled out globally over the next few years. Now, what's the latest news about this industry migration, please? Well, this is a really important programme uh, across the entire world's payment systems. Uh, the good news is that this meshes schema, known as ISO 20022, is now globally accepted as the best way to standardize and modernize payments and financial messaging. Global adoption of this standard will make interoperability between different payment systems so much easier, whether they run on SWIFT or on other proprietary networks. And it will also enable much more automation and real-time straight-through processing. So the overall plan is that by the end of November 2025, 
ISO 20022 will be adopted around the world for practically all payment messaging. Um, in March this year, it was very important when SWIFT announced plans for a one-year delay before starting this uh, ISO 20022 global migration for um, cross-border payments and reporting. This is partly due to COVID-19, of course. Uh, this core element of the global migration was originally due to start in November 2021, but but despite the the twelve month delayed start now set for twenty twenty November twenty twenty two, it's really important to note that the proposed end date of twenty twenty five will not be modified. So there's actually now an even smaller window to become compliant with this new format. Um, as a result of Swift's um, announcement and, and the COVID nineteen challenges, a number of major market infrastructures have also subsequently decided to delay their own migrations to ISO 20022. So, for example, EBA Clearing has just announced that the migration for their um, important pan-European payment systems known as Euro 1 and Step 2, they've also been delayed by 12 months. That's until November 2022. Uh, and this date will now align and coincide with the, the revised Target 2 and target to securities timetable, which was also recently announced by the European Central Bank. So other payment systems like the UK's RTGS, which is currently known as CHAP, so that might change in the future, and the US Fedwire, they're, they're also reconsidering their timings. And their migrations are probably in 2023, possibly the following year. So, so it's, all, it's a lot of change at the moment, but there's a major program ahead of us. Certainly, and the benefits seem clear and, and abundant. However, what are the greatest risks of this uh, ambitious migration? As mentioned, the migration of cross-border payments to ISO 20022 is going to start in November 2022. And the, coexist the coexistence, I should say, with the MT standard is going to continue until November 2025. So during this, this period, there's a risk that the the richer data carried by ISO 2022 might get truncated or, or, or cut off when these XML messages are converted into the legacy MT FIN messages. Unfortunately, these FIN messages are not able to carry so much structured data as the new ISO 2022 formats. So SWIFT's working with um, fintech solution providers like, like Bottom Line um, to help um, financial institutions through this transition period. Um, we'll be providing mapping and translation services, as well as a cloud-based data vault to ensure that data is not lost. Um, the, the improvement in data quality and quantity, which um, ISO 20022 is going to deliver, is going to really play a central role in helping SWIFT to achieve the vision that we mentioned earlier about making payments faster and simpler and more efficient. This is going to enable richer data analytics and insights, which will enable better decision-making. Um, at the end of the migration period in November 2025, MT FIN messages in the categories called MT100, MT200, and MT900, they're all going to be withdrawn by SWIFT. Uh, but it's noteworthy there are two significant exceptions to this retirement of those MT FIN messages. Two categories of users fall outside the current scope of the ISO 20022 migration. Uh, so these are organizations which currently use SCORE which is a special user group for corporate members of SWIFT um, with their own SWIFT uh, address or BIC. Um, and other users outside the migration scope are certain market infrastructure closed user groups. So these two categories 
are about the only users of SWIFT that are not yet directly affected by this major global migration. So all of the 11,000, uh, all of the other 11,000 members of SWIFT are actually affected and need to take action to get ready. During Cybos, SWIFT announced that they understand that most of the large payment banks anticipate migrating to ISO 20022 during the first year of the transition period. So that's effectively during 2023. And SWIFT are therefore advising smaller banks and other financial institutions not to get left behind and definitely to avoid leaving their migration until the last six months of the three-year transition period. Uh, yes, it's certainly not something to uh, leave to the wire. Now, Marcus, this is clearly a major program over the next few years, and it's clearly important that those affected talk to financial messaging experts like Bottomline to understand what's expected of them. Could you just remind us then uh, what the main advantages of ISO 20022 are compared to traditional MT-FIN messages? Yeah, that's important for people to bear in mind. So the switch to ISO 20022 is going to allow payments to carry a great deal more structured data, as well as standardizing payment formats, which were previously inconsistent in different parts of the world and even in the same country. Um, a major reason why regulators are keen to see widespread adoption of ISO 20022 is that it will make it easier to ensure compliance with anti-money laundering requirements. This will help enormously in the fight on fraud and financial crime. ISO 20022 has many structured fields which can be made mandatory for including important detail, such as the name and address of the ultimate beneficiary, as well as full details of the originator and any banks involved in the transaction. This means payments using ISO 20022 can be forced to include all the information necessary to comply with uh, FATF 16 requirements and EU wire transfer regulations, for example, and many other regulations as well, actually. Uh, another important advantage of ISO 20022 messaging is it's going to increase efficiency. So it's going to result in lower cost and higher straight through processing rates. Uh, the increase in information provided can also be used to make it easier to track payments in real time across multiple banks and different payment systems. And it's also going to reduce the risk of errors, as users will be able to include additional payment details and references. So, so using rich data in a structured way is going to make it easier for parties receiving payments to achieve higher levels of automated reconciliation. And it will also enable a much richer level of data analytics and insights. This is going to help better decision making, of course. Um, ISO 2022 even carries non-Latin character sets. So names and other details in languages such as Mandarin or Arabic can also be accommodated. Um, another important advantage of adopting ISO 20022 is a greater level of interoperability between different payment systems. This avoids the need to perform data transformation on, on payment messages, which were originally intended to go into one payment system, just for example, UK Faster Payments, which today uses ISO 8583 format, which has been actually designed for card processing. But then for whatever reason, that payment now needs to be sent into a different payment system, for example, CHAPS, which still uses MTFIN messages today. But, but the good news is there are now plans in the UK to create a common credit message, which will use ISO 20022, of course. And, and this is going to be adopted by the faster payment system and also by the UK's new 
real-time gross settlement system, which is set to replace CHAPS in the next few years. So for the first time, there will be a robust interoperability between these two important UK payment systems, which is going to provide a better level of contingency or disaster recovery arrangement than we've actually had before. Well, I'm sorry to say that we've uh, fast approached the end. We've covered a lot of ground today with some great insights on 2020's event. So I wonder if we could finish by hearing what your thoughts on future Cybos events are, please. So um, next year's Cybos um, is due to be held in Singapore, which is a really exciting and dynamic financial hub. And it's a major center for fintech and, of course, for trade finance. And Singapore is an important part of Bottomline's own international representation. And of course, I love visiting the Asia-Pacific region, which is really diversified in culture and history, and it plays an increasingly important part in the world economy. So I sincerely hope that by next autumn, the world will have recovered from the pandemic to a point where cyber, well, the Cybos community can once again meet in person in Singapore and enjoy a fully interactive uh, trade show, just the way Cybos is supposed to be. Absolutely agree. And Marcus, once again, thank you so much for joining us again. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again at some point very soon. Thank you, Rich. I'm I'm sure we'll speak again soon and, and bye for now. Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.